The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. So, what's your risk exposure to increasing energy costs? Do you have a plan to lower that risk? Here's one way, a microgrid. A microgrid solution can optimize your distributed energy resources, helping unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges. Now you can reap the benefits of a microgrid with no upfront capital through a new microgrid as a service business model from Schneider Electric. Find out more about how it works at www.schneider-electric.us/microgrid. Or if it's easier, just follow the link in the show notes of the podcast page. So what are you doing on December 12th and 13th? If it's not hanging out with GTM at our storage summit in San Francisco, I hope you have a good excuse, especially since podcast listeners get 20% off their tickets. For the last two years, this event has sold out, and we're already on our way to another sellout show. So there's a lot to cover this year. Here are a few examples. Utilities are getting serious about all kinds of storage for different grid needs. Have we reached an inflection point for long-term grid planning? State mandates on energy storage continue to move forward. What mechanism is best suited for building out a storage market? And a spate of M&A activity has occurred over the last 11 months, with notable activity including Enel's acquisition of Demand Energy and Wartzilla's acquisition of Greensmith. Um, we're going to hear from some of the companies that have been acquired and are doing the acquiring and talk about how these acquisitions are shaping the energy storage business. So again, Energy Gang listeners get 20% off their registration at GTM Storage Summit in San Francisco on December 12th and 13th. Come listen to experts, uh, network with them, and maybe sign some deals. Hope to see you there. So the basic premise is that Renewables, as they grow, are starting to reshape electricity. Um, it really does boil down to the fact that renewables have become so much more competitive versus traditional fossil-fueled generation sources in the United States. Now you think about a future where you get more and more renewables in the system. It's harder and harder to keep these gas plants around, right? So, so suddenly you might be in a situation where a lot of these gas plants are not around. This is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. And this week, we're recording from GTM's Power and Renewables Summit in Austin, Texas, where we've been detailing the ways that wind, solar, storage, and cheap gas are transforming power markets right now. Like now, now, in real time, in pretty fundamental ways. In this episode, we're tapping the collective modeling expertise of GTM Research, Wood McKenzie, and Make Consulting. So, Shale, you kicked off the summit with Wood McKenzie's Project Gauche and Make Consulting's Dan Shreve. And you asked a question, how are renewables disrupting power markets today? So what's the answer? So there are a few ways. And, you know, I should note that I think the idea that we've got is that as we build more and more renewable energy, as it gets cheaper and cheaper, it's going to start having a bigger impact on wholesale power markets and other resources on the grid. But ultimately, that's going to come back around and have a big impact on those renewable resources as well. And so what we wanted to do is try to lay out this cycle that we think we we may be headed for if we don't figure out how to deal with it that could ultimately be a challenge for every player in the market. 
So there are a few different ways just to start on how renewables are already impacting power markets. The biggest one that most folks are probably familiar with are, you know, renewables, wind and solar, um, have zero, basically zero marginal cost to generate. So they bid into the wholesale markets at zero, or if there's a production tax credit in the case of wind, they can bid in at negative dollars. The result of that is that it drives down wholesale prices. And despite the fact that we don't have super high penetration of renewables in most of the country yet, we are seeing that have a big impact on power prices already. So we looked at how often you see low price events in the U.S. and how often you see high price events in the U.S. across a bunch of different wholesale markets. And even today, the results are sort of obvious. I was struck by that chart. I didn't realize how significant the impact is. And and those are markets in North America, both Canada and the US, right? Yeah, exactly. And so just over the past three years, you can you could sort of clearly see that low pricing events, meaning like times when wholesale electricity prices are below $10 a megawatt hour or one cent per kilowatt hour are becoming increasingly common. So much so that in, in Ontario, where you see the most of this, it's basically half the year now. And then high priced events when electricity prices in the wholesale markets are over $100 per megawatt hour are becoming less and less frequent as time goes on. And those high price events have actually been important for a lot of generators in terms of earning their annual revenue requirements. So wholesale prices are just falling everywhere that we're building out more renewables. So we don't even have that much wind and solar really when we look at potential development like project pipelines, for example, like there's just going to be a ton more wind and solar that hits these regional grids and already they're squeezing traditional fossil generators. They're in for a world of hurt. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's tough to be any merchant generator. This is why folks have talked about the merchant business model being dead, right? If you are uh, operating any kind of generator that is subject to wholesale prices directly, so that's what a merchant generator is, right? Doesn't have a power purchase agreement in place. Um, then, you know, it seems pretty clear that almost no matter where you are, your revenue is going to be decreasing as time goes on. And so unless you model that in and the economics are still okay for you, that means you're going to end up with early retirements and bankruptcies and all the things that we're just starting to see now in all these markets. Let's actually hear from Projet now. He explains what's going on in this chart that Shale was talking about and what it means for these fossil merchant generators. So really three takeaways, right? As, as we see this sort of price trend going downwards, the first is it obviously puts stress on fossil fuel assets. Um, so you could possibly see you know, a lot more retirements uh, earlier than you anticipate, which could cause reliability issues. And we'll talk, talk through some of that. The second is it challenges the economics of solar and wind. Right? So if you're, if you're looking at, a, if you see more and more uh, less than $10 prices, you know, how much lower can your costs go? You know, especially as tax equity, as Dan pointed out, tax credits go away or RPS standards uh, become less and less important in the bigger scheme of things. And the third is, there's not a chart here, but the wholesale prices are falling, but you're also seeing retail prices rising at the same time. And we've seen that in Ontario. And what that ultimately does is, uh, w- when there's when there's higher retail prices that residential consumers or commercial consumers have to pay, you, you, you see a ramp down on renewables targets, and that's exactly what we've seen in Ontario. So, so these are just some of the things that we'll have to increasingly think about 
in terms of how to resolve these issues. So meanwhile, as you've got this immense need for more flexible resources, Projet put this other chart up there looking at what happened on a specific day in California. And then he talked a little bit about the flexible needs as a result of the amount of solar that California is integrating onto its grid. Um, Tell us about what you guys were modeling on that specific day in September in California. Right. So September 1st this year in California, um, I live in California and I remember it being a heat wave. It was a super hot day. Um, so it was almost the peaking day of the year, um, but it was in the fall. So it's different from the time in the spring when you end up with a ton of solar generation. So we had this really hot day. Everybody turned on their air conditioners. And you can see just on that day what happens in a market like California, which has over 20% solar already. Um, basically, in the middle of the day, when you would have had the peak, uh, solar is generating a lot. And so it cuts way into the need for anything else. So that's great. But as the sun was setting, uh, when the solar power generation started to come off, the the load was still quite high. It was almost as high as it was at the peak in the middle of the day because this was a heat wave day. And so the air conditioners basically stayed on through into the evening, stayed hot in the evening. So the result of that was that as you lost all this solar generation, there was a really rapid need for a whole bunch of new capacity to come online to make sure the lights stayed on. That ended up being almost exclusively natural gas and imports. I heard someone at this conference call California's solar development a science experiment on the grid. People used to talk about Hawaii that way. They would say Hawaii is like a postcard from the future of the grid. California, I guess. I think if California passes a 100% renewable standard, which is on the table um, and may pass at some point, that'll be a real science experiment. Well, let's turn to Projet and hear a little bit more about what was going on in California on that September day. So the peak would have been 52 gigawatts. Now, once you account for the distributed solar, there's about five gigawatts of you know, rooftop or community solar in California. About, we estimate that there was about 3.5 gigawatts that was uh, producing at 4 to 5 p.m. Once you net out solar generation and wind generation in, at that 4 to 5 period, what you get is that net demand at time of system peak. That's the marker. It's roughly about 42 gigawatts, right? So from a system planning standpoint or reliability standpoint, you know, Kaiso's thinking about that, that, that peak of 42 gigawatts and how much fossil fuels do you have to dispatch? How much fossil fuels do you have to have in place uh, to meet that demand? But there's another nuance. Um, now, you think that four to five is the peak demand are, but ultimately what happened was if you fast forward to eight o'clock, um, that net peak, because obviously there's not a whole lot of solar at 8 p.m., it was about 0.3% of approximately 10 gigawatts of solar that exists in California. There was only about 300 megawatts out of 15 gigawatts of solar and wind that was available at 8 p.m. So the net peak was actually higher at 8 p.m. than it was uh, at 4 p.m. What that means is now from a system planning standpoint or reliability standpoint, you're thinking about 8 p.m. and not 4 p.m. Right, so now what happened at 8 p.m.? You know, we know that there wasn't a lot of solar and wind available at, in that time frame. Now, there was about, so Kaiso had to dispatch about 11 gigawatts of imports from outside of California 
and about 26 gigawatts of gas. Now there's about 33 gigawatts of total gas capacity in Kaiso, right? So, so that's what kept our light, the lights on in California, right? So, so now, you, now you think about a future where you get more and more renewables in the system. Uh, you've got 26 gigawatts of gas that was needed on that day, and there's 33 gigawatts of total gas. So as, and if you relate this to the previous slide, as power prices keep falling, it's harder and harder to keep these gas plants around. Right? So, so suddenly you might be in a situation where a lot of these gas plants are not around. Uh, so what happens then? Um, so that's the kind of challenges that you'll increasingly face. So we sort of extended this analysis to say, what if we take this same day and we think about an 80% renewables world or 100% renewables world in California? Because that's what they're targeting or, uh, or, trying to, or proposing. Uh, what we found was that even with an 80% renewables target, uh, one, you will need billions and billions of dollars of investment in battery storage, right, just to solve this issue. This, this is what power markets tend to think of. How much more solar do you need? How much more solar plus storage do you need? And ultimately, how much gas do you need around, too? So a bunch of wind and solar hitting the grid, causing record low prices. That's not such a bad thing, Shale. Why should we be worried about super saturation of these resources? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think there are elements of this that are purely positive. You know, in, it's not inherently bad to have low wholesale prices. Ultimately, that should mean that electricity prices for consumers go down too. Uh, you know, it's also a good thing, at least in my opinion, that we're building out a lot more renewables and that they're becoming cost competitive. So those are all good things. I think what you need to be careful about is, first of all, as we've been talking about, so what are the resources that are still needed on the grid um, when you build out more renewables? And are those resources the ones that you want? Are they most cost effective? Are they cleanest? And so on. So if we end up with 30 gigawatts of gas backing up solar every day in California, is that what we want to be doing? But just as importantly, I think the other thing that oftentimes gets left out of the conversation, at least in renewable circles, is that ultimately it's going to come back around and this is going to have an impact on the prospects for renewable energy. And so we've talked about this in one fashion or another many times before on this podcast, you know, the value deflation effect. As you build more solar or wind, the next bit of it becomes less valuable because you have so much generation all at the same time. The way that that ultimately plays out in the market is through these low wholesale prices. Right now, wind and solar projects are basically not exposed to those low wholesale prices. Every single solar project, especially in the U.S., has a power purchase agreement, a fixed price that it's going to get for power. So it's it's sitting off to the side from what's happening in these wholesale markets. But I don't think that that's sustainable forever for two reasons. One, uh, ultimately, you know, you're going to want to keep building new renewables and PPAs won't always be available. But second, even if they are available, I think PPA prices will adjust to align closer with wholesale prices, which is all basically to say that it means if this cycle keeps going, you build more renewables, prices go down, um, Renewables continue to get cheaper, more commitments from cities, from corporates, you know, more demand, you build more renewables and so on, that it's going to hit a point where um, it's going to get very hard to earn a return on a new wind or solar project, given the prices that you can yield in the market. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. 
Are you considering a microgrid to improve your facility's resiliency, efficiency, and sustainability? If so, it's important to engage a trusted partner like Schneider Electric to help you meet your energy goals and your budget. Schneider Electric will guide you through the most important questions. How would your business and employees be impacted if your facility lost power for a week or more? Are you maximizing your distributed energy resources to unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges? Do you need an easy way to report on your sustainability performance? Microgrids are a natural extension of Schneider Electric's 100-year legacy in the power distribution and energy management business. Learn more about how Schneider Electric is developing new technologies, financing models, and partnerships to maximize your microgrid investment. Go to www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. That's www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. Or just follow the link in the show notes of your podcast player or on the website. So you have this iterative cycle where projects at scale are driving down prices, which are impacting wholesale prices, which ultimately will impact the economics of a project. It's not, it's not a virtuous cycle. It's a vicious cycle. It could be, I think. You know, I, you, People talk in some circles some, somewhat reverently about the idea that wholesale electricity prices are just going to go to zero and stay there. There's a, there's a camp of thinking that um, ultimately we're just going to have exclusively resources that have zero marginal cost. And so wholesale prices are just going to crash. You know, that scares me a little bit because you still want to be able to build out more renewables. We're still, you know, solar just crossed the 2% penetration threshold in the U S last year, like 2%. You know, the fact that we're having this conversation now when it's at 2%, like we're trying to get to what 50% by mid century or something of that order like there's there's something's gotta move in order for that to get that far i also seem to remember people talking about electricity too cheap to meter back in the early days of nuclear yeah well it didn't turn out that way well but right i mean you know it would have been interesting to see what would happen if nuclear had uh come through on the technical promise right because the reason it didn't happen with nuclear wasn't that wasn't that the the market screwed up and you know we couldn't figure out how to handle electricity that was too cheap to meter. It's just nuclear actually didn't turn out to be too cheap to meter. Yeah, fair, totally fair. Well, speaking of fulfilling that technology promise, let's actually hear from Dan Shreve, who gives a really uh, detailed description of what's driving down wind project costs. We've talked a lot about what's driving down solar project costs on this show, but Dan does a really nice job of explaining what's going on on the wind side. It really comes down to efficiencies in the supply chain and advancement of technology. And we're talking about those technology advancements. We're looking at turbines getting bigger, moving from two, two and a half megawatts to three, three and a half megawatts. That helps reduce balance of plant costs. It helps reduce the size of the site, the amount of cables that have to be run, the amount of roads, foundations, et cetera longer blades. What we saw as state-of-the-art just five, six years ago has become a legacy turbine. You're looking down the road right now, the next two to three years of turbines in the onshore market being deployed with plus 70 meter blades. I mean, think about the size of that and the scales is amazing. Um, And then similarly with towers in terms of new tower technology, moving from 80 meter standard hub heights to 110 meter standard hub heights. This is very interesting stuff. What's more interesting is the fact that when you've looked back over the last couple of years, someone that's able to manufacture a blade that's 55 meters long at a lower cost 
than the blade they made five years ago that was 45 meters long. I mean, that's some very interesting activity in terms of material science, construction, process improvement, so on and so forth. All right, well, this begs the question, does merchant renewable energy make sense? Will merchant solar actually become a thing? I'm pretty skeptical. Um, even if you look at just what you know revenue you would get as a merchant solar generator today in any of the major markets, the numbers are pretty low. I mean, it varies a lot, first of all, right? You'll have spring days in California when your merchant revenue will be close to zero. Um, and you'll have other days in other markets where you can get 20 or $30 per megawatt hour. But, you know, generally speaking, it's both very risky. Um, you have to trust in, you know, the merchant curve. You have to think you know where power prices are going. And generally, you have to assume that they're going to go up in order for you to get comfortable financing these projects. Um, and, you know, they're low already today. So I'm, I don't think, you know, we've been talking about the merchant business model being dead. I think that's true across all technologies, including wind and solar. Good news. There are things we can do about this. So we really get to this third question now, which is what can you do about this? And in order to answer that question, it's probably helpful to uh, understand this vicious cycle a little bit more. So I want to turn to a piece of tape where you are actually identifying the different stages in this cycle. And then we can talk about the off ramps. Right. So the kind of overall cycle that we're describing here looks something like this. Renewable costs continue to fall. We all expect that to happen. I think you should expect the same. As a result of renewable costs continuing to fall, you see more and more commitments and more and more procurement. You see non-state actors as well as state actors, utilities procuring more and more of it. Penetration thus increases. You get more variable renewables on the grid. That has all these impacts on power markets, which are ultimately disrupted in a number of ways. Prices fall. Uh, other existing generators, especially merchant generators, retire early, the things that we're starting to see happen right now, that ultimately does come back to those renewable projects or to the next wave of renewable projects, which have a harder time uh, earning a profit or are able to yield less revenue in one way or another, um, but costs continue to fall. And so this is this sort of somewhat dangerous cycle where ultimately you know, there's a worry that not necessarily going to send the grid into a bunch of blackouts, but makes it a hard market to play in. Um, however, there are obviously off ramps here. And one of the major things that we want to talk about at this conference is, is this something that is definitely going to happen? Or is this something that could happen if we don't take any number of these off ramps? And the off ramps can go in a bunch of different directions. So let's talk about those off-ramps. There are four broad categories or s potential solutions that you identify. A couple of them are more draconian. A couple of them take a more finessed approach. Well, the other way to put that is that some of them are bad ideas um, and some of them are potentially good ideas. But you know, any given one of them is a way to sort of change this dynamic, change this cycle um, and, and you know, have an off-ramp, so to speak. So subsidizing baseload power, good idea or bad idea? Right. So that's that's one way to deal with this, right? What what Secretary Perry appears to want to do via this rulemaking that the DOE sent to FERC that we've talked about before that is making all these waves is ensure that certain baseload resources, coal and nuclear generally, at least in certain markets, but I think, you know, he'd probably like to do it everywhere, um, ensure that they earn a profit basically. And if you do that, you've totally changed this whole game, right? Because wholesale prices falling to zero just won't matter for these resources if they are guaranteed 
cost of service recovery anyway. So that will save a bunch of coal and nuclear. Uh, it'll make it harder for renewables to compete. They will have less ability. They will have less pricing power. Um, so bad idea. Stupid idea. Yeah. And uh, it's not just us saying that. It's pretty much everybody. Almost everybody. Yeah. Even like Dynagy is saying that, you know, in its comments on it to FERC right now. Like, it's, yeah. you know. We've had a couple utilities on stage who've said the same thing. People have eviscerated it on stage here at this conference. Yeah. I mean, including folks who own coal plants. They, yeah. they see it as a pretty bald-faced, you know, desire to just save coal, but with very little standing from a legal standpoint, very little standing from a, a, an analytical and technical standpoint. It's just, it's a, it's a ham-fisted, way to go about achieving your political ends. Okay, so we agree. Bad idea. Wait, here's a better idea. Make renewables more expensive. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's another one that, you know, this one seems a little less likely, I suppose, but I mean, it's on the table right now, which is you can slow this whole train down by just making renewables more expensive. And the way that you could do that right now is by early repeal or reduction of either the production tax credit or the investment tax credit. And so everyone in the business community says, bad idea. This is already slowing deals that were in the works. Well, and the reason we're talking about it is because it is in, there is a, in the house tax bill um, that was released last week, it would reduce, significantly reduce the production tax credit. It wouldn't do a whole lot to the investment tax credit. So solar would be okay, apart from ultimately it would expire rather than going to 10%. But for wind, it would be a really big deal. So it's possible. I think it's viewed as generally unlikely that that's ultimately going to go through. But, you know, it's in the bill. Well, we heard from Goldman Sachs. We heard from GE. We heard from a couple other developers that projects are getting stalled today because of this uncertainty. Just the fact that this plan exists in the world, it's already causing turmoil. And actually, I just heard the same thing for the the DOE NOPER, the rulemaking that uh, Secretary Perry sent over to, to FERC, which is that there are some utilities who are going to open up new solicitations for renewables, but they are holding off on doing that because they don't know whether the coal plants they're expecting to retire are going to retire now because of this rulemaking. So they're waiting. So it's holding off on, you know, new procurement for renewables. Bad idea. Bad idea. (laughs) Okay. I think we can all agree that those are two pretty bad ideas. Um, Here's a good one. Add more flexible resources of which there are a growing number. Uh, What are those resources and, you know, what are the integration methods that you're outlining? Right. So the couple things that flexibility would allow you, at least in this context. One is, you know, you'll have those times a day when you have too much generation of renewables and very little demand and those other times when you have a lot of demand and and not so much. So in that September 1st, California example, too much in the middle of the day and not enough in the evening. Um, flexible resources will either allow you to shift that generation from the time when it is generating to the time when it is needed or shift that load from the time when it comes later to when the generation existed earlier. Um, also, that can serve to flatten out the prices. So in those cases, when you have those really low or negative prices, you'll increase those prices ultimately by adding flexible resources that basically flatten the price curve. So flexible resources, you've got an incumbent solution, which is primarily gas. Um, and as we said in California, that's what's providing the flexibility today that is needed for the most part. So fast acting gas. Um, but you know, there's a whole suite of new sources of flexibility, the ones that we talk about on this podcast a lot, 
batteries, electric vehicles, demand response, and load control, all of which can basically serve the same purpose in this context. And so technology flexibility is important, but also geographic flexibility, which brings us to the fourth one, and that is the expansion of regional markets. Um, Norman Bay, who is the former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, in his conversation with you on stage said that the march of markets is one of the most important um, things guiding renewable energy today. And this expansion of markets is allowing you to integrate more variable renewable resources. So why is that a good potential solution? And what markets are we seeing actually expand to accommodate this uh, resource variability? So market regionalization and expansion, basically what it does expands the footprint um, across which you are trading. That means that you have more varied resources uh, of different kinds, different technologies, different resource profiles. Wind operating in one place has a different generation profile from wind in another place. And so they are more complementary toward each other. It is, it is very clearly a big benefit in integrating renewables at higher levels. And we're starting to see it happen in lots of places. You know, there's a Western grid regionalization effort going on. Um, there's talk about more high voltage transmission, which can do it from a physical perspective. A lot of the, uh, the modeling of really high penetration of renewables, when we've talked to folks like Christopher Clack about, you know, 80% renewables modeling, um, or when NREL did that, you know, they rely upon a often a national network of high voltage transmission, or a national market that there's trading within. So ultimately, you have to go even further than the regionalization that we're talking about now. But you know, this is an important piece of the pie. And as Projit mentioned on stage, it's really cheap relative to the alternative. So now all of a sudden, Everyone's really excited about markets, about unfettered markets, because they see it as important for integrating these resources. And that wasn't always the case. Yeah. Or I think that like the 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 rhetoric and the argument amongst folks who wanna push this transition forward has changed a little bit and oriented itself a lot bit. Yeah, maybe a lot and oriented itself much further toward markets, which creates a really funny political sort of tie now where you've got the like environmentalists and renewable energy proponents pushing for markets for more market integration and you know greater flexibility within free markets and they're pushing up against the Republican federal administration which is taking action that pretty clearly runs like anti to competitive markets certainly in the case of this DOE Noper. It's a it's a weird like non-standard politics we're living in now in in the electricity sector. We're actually going to tackle this political question in a future episode. We're talking with two folks who have historically been on um, opposite ends of the political spectrum. Uh, Devin Hartman of the R Street Institute, which is uh, a free market think tank, and Lene Shirley of the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a historically progressive environmental group. And we're going to hear from them about why they're marching lockstep on the importance of flattening markets to integrate all these new kinds of resources. And um, I think what you're hearing is a lot of the same rhetoric coming out of these groups that at one point were probably on different ends of the spectrum. I felt like this was a pretty successful conference. I think yeah, we covered was, a lot of good ground and made headway on what needs to happen. 
Yeah, you know, what was cool about it is it is a it's a really eclectic crowd. You've got the the renewable technology folks and the developers, you've got, you know, traditional power marketers and grid operators and utilities and some regulators. So it's a it's a cool group that I haven't actually seen all together in one room before. And I think they're sort of developing on the spot a sort of common language to talk about what's happening. All right, well we popped the pole of the tent and we're hoping to hoping to widen that tent. Uh, Shale Khan is my co-host. He's our senior vice president and the head of GTM Research. I'm Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media. Thanks for listening. You know, you can get us anywhere you get your podcasts. So uh, if you're getting us on iTunes, go and leave us a review or a rating. Uh, it really helps in finding us new listeners. And you can, of course, just interact with us on Twitter if you've got comments on what we're talking about or if you have uh, show suggestions, send them to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And we just uh, set up an interchange Twitter account there that's brand new. So go follow us on Twitter and we'll hopefully provide a, a bunch more updates from this show. What is popping a pole? I you own know a what couple popping of, a pole is. I've you, never heard that. You're a expression. camper. You have tents. I have tents. Yeah, I have yeah, multiple it's tents. the first pole that you put up that creates the base for the rest of the tent. That's popping a pole? Uh-huh. I, I erect a pole <laughs> sometimes. I, I stand up a pole. I don't know that I've ever popping popped a pole. A pole. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I'm going to use it now, but I've just never heard it before. Yeah, it's just an easy way. It's like, pop that pole. Yeah, pop that pole. (laughs) Hey, you know, I'll go make the fire. You pop the pole. (laughs) If you know of this phrase, let us know. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next week. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. 